Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Medieval Beginnings, a new exploration of medieval literature with me, Irina Dumitrescu, and my co-host, Mary Wellesley. Hello, Mary. Hello, Irina. In the last episode, we looked at the best-known surviving poem from early medieval England, Beowulf. As you might remember, Beowulf ends with the hero's funeral. One of the final voices we hear is that of a mourning woman, who predicts her people's downfall now that their king and protector is dead. We are not told the words of her lament, but we do have a series of other sorrowful poems in Old English with female speakers. Amazingly, we also have a remarkable group of letters written by English nuns in Latin in the 8th century. Women's voices, imagined and real, in poetry and in prose, are our topic today. And you can find links to versions of all these texts in the show notes. Mary, can you tell us a little bit about these? How should we imagine they look in the manuscript? What manuscript are they found in? Okay, so the manuscript is this wonderful book called the Exeter Book. And a a short kind of note on manuscripts and the manuscripts that contain Old English poetry. So the Old English period is, let's say, it's around a 600-year period. So it's it's kind of equivalent to sort of the time of Chaucer to the time of the modern day. And yet the vast majority of surviving Old English poetry exists in four physical books. So if we imagine, you know, the, say the 600-year period from Chaucer's day to our own day and, and only four physical books survive, let's say we've got one work by Chaucer, one work by Shakespeare, one Dickens, one Harry Potter. What picture does that give of our literary culture? So it's really these manuscripts are themselves incredibly precious. And the Exeter book is one of those manuscripts. It hasn't always been very well treated uh, during the course of its life. The front of it has been used as a chopping board. It's got some kind of scrapes in it. And towards the back, uh, it's got this enormous burn in it, um, which is rather appropriate because there's this beautiful poem called The Ruin, which is all about uh, the ruined remains of a town. And it's this meditation on impermanence and loss and um, how material fragments are susceptible to decay. And the poem is broken up by this massive burn in the middle of it. So it's um, there's something kind of wonderful about the materiality of the manuscript itself. It contains, the Exeter book, only poetry, which is quite interesting. And we can tell that from very early in its history, it uh, was in Exeter Cathedral Library. So in 1072, Leofrich, who was um, the Bishop of Exeter, donated a whole load of books to um, Exeter Cathedral Library. And there is a description of one book which is described as a kind of a large English book with everything written in the manner of poetry. And so we think most likely this is the Exeter book. In terms of what it contains, it's sort of probably to the modern reader something of a rag bag. I think that we 
as modern readers expect that a book will generally contain one text, or that if it contains several texts, the texts are sort of, you know, there's an anthologizing tendency behind their co-location within a manus- within a, a book. But that's just not true of medieval manuscripts. I mean, medieval manuscripts in, in some ways are more like a, a kind of modern bookshelf. You know, it's just a sort of collection of stuff that's sort of all together. Nonetheless, there are some sort of, well, there are similarities of theme. And crucially for the poems that we're thinking about today, they appear just before a long section of riddles. And to some degree, they are these kind of little enigmatic emotional riddles themselves that really resist interpretation. And it's important to say the Anglo-Saxons loved riddles. So they're prominent in the Exeter book, but you see them all over the place in the literary culture of the time. They composed and copied Latin riddles. They were interested in English riddles. Uh, People are always asking questions and answering them. So the best known of these poems that are female voiced is called The Wife's Lament, or at least that's its name today. Can you tell us a little bit about what happens in the poem, just so we get our bearings? Okay, well, I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> so we, we have an unnamed speaker who announces like right at the beginning that she will tell this uh, you know painful song about herself and from the opening two lines it's clear that we've got a female speaker because the words have these feminine inflectional endings so telling us that it's a, a female speaker she has a, a lord who leaves her he goes away over the water and then she decides that she too must go and uh, kind of go into exile as well And while she's away, her husband's kinsmen plot to separate them. Then for some reason, her lord, most likely her husband, we think, orders her to take up home in this odd place. We're not quite sure what is being described. And actually, this is, to come back to the manuscript, it depends a little bit on how you read what the scribe has done here. But I think probably the most helpful uh, reading of it is that the line should read something like, my lord commanded me to take a pagan shrine. Um, and we can talk a little bit later about what that might mean. Then she finds a man who is seemingly most equal, suitable, similar. It's not 100% clear if this is her husband or not, right? This is... Right, exactly. So is this some new person? We're not sure. But this this guy who's kind of seemingly really wonderful, is actually deceitful. He's hiding violent intentions. He's intent on murder. So then we have this kind of very beautiful section of the poem when she talks about how then she's forced to live alone in this kind of earth cave, Erthsgrafe, that she describes um, under under Actreo, under an oak tree. And she moans about her longing and... Um, While all of her friends get to sleep in lovely beds, she is walking in the dawn all alone in this, you know, really unforgiving landscape with these dark hills and it's overgrown with briars. And then this kind of final bit of the poem, she reflects on how a young man should keep his emotions hidden and he should appear of kind of happy, blithe demeanor when actually he's feeling very sad. And she sort of muses on whether her husband is also feeling sorrowful. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a kind of a bit of a stab at what's going on. But it's again, as as is probably clear, it's very unclear who 
who is being described. I mean, we they, a lot of these kind of generic terms like Hlafford just means Lord come up again and again. And, and it's not clear whether that means the husband or some other kind of Lord who's like at some sort of political leader. You know, the, the man, the, this kind of suitable man who's described is, it's it's not clear who that is. And there, there are some kind of gear changes in the poem as well. I mean, particularly that final section where there is this sort of meditation on how you know, a young man must appear cheerful. It feels a little bit, perhaps a tiny bit tacked on to the to the end of the poem. Becomes a little bit like a moral. And I think it's worth saying also, uh, scholars not only have not been sure what's actually going on in this poem or how many people there are or who the speaker is, um, there's no clear source for this. There's no other narrative that we can turn to that would explain what it's about. But the Exeter Books' earliest editor, Benjamin Thorpe, actually didn't call it the wife's lament at all. He called it the exile's complaint. And he suggested changing the opening lines to have masculine endings. And I think, uh, you know, this is partly a reflection of the history of the field that it's been difficult to imagine a female speaker. A woman having emotional range. <laughs> a woman having... <laughs> A woman talking about them in words um, on a page. Uh, But part of that was also because I think because of the vocabulary that the speaker of the wife's lament uses. Most people would say now she's using the vocabulary of Lord retainer relations, this this powerful, emotional, homosocial bond between warriors who have a political relationship to describe her sexual romantic relationship with her partner. And today we do the opposite thing. Today we talk about everything that's powerfully emotional as being like a romance. That's why when two men are very close to one another as friends, we call it a bromance, uh, because it's hard to imagine something that's not along the lines of a sexual relationship. In early medieval England, what we're seeing is the opposite. The relationship between men is the standard way of thinking about powerful uh, emotions. And if you want to describe passion for your husband, you then use the, that relationship as a model. Thanks for listening to this extract from Medieval Beginnings, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. To listen to the full episodes and all our other close reading series, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.